very much. And I just briefly introduce Peter. You can see his title, what he's going to talk about up there. It's uh, a long kind of historical view. Just to introduce Peter briefly, he's the arts writer at the Financial Times. He writes a regular column every Saturday um, uh, and other things as they come along. Um, he's been at the Financial Times for 17 years. And um, uh, long before that, or a while before that, he studied here in Oxford. Then he worked in Cambridge. Uh, he started his journalism career on the Cambridge Evening News, a local newspaper, which used to be the standard way in to journalism in Britain, but is decreasingly so since there are fewer and fewer jobs in local papers and fewer and fewer training schemes. He worked at the Cambridge Evening News for a while, then the Times Higher Educational Supplement, and then went on to the FT um, in the mid-1990s. So, Peter, you're going to talk for about 20, 30 minutes? Yeah, yeah. Over to I you. That'll then... be right. I'll okay. put this here just so I can keep eyes. Well, thank you very much for asking me. Um, and, um, and yes, I'll just very briefly um, share my, uh, my, my, my origins in journalism, if I may, with you just very quickly. Uh, I, I was here as an undergraduate. I did PPE. And, um, and around the third year, I began to think about wanting to be a journalist. And um, it was a very attractive thing for me for two reasons. Number one, I was a student in the 1970s. So number one, journalism had just brought down a US president, which struck me as incredibly exciting um, that it could do that. But on the sort of less noble front, journalism also seemed like the most fantastic fun because the 70s, of course, was the, uh, the beginnings of what was called the new journalism uh, when cultural, countercultural magazines like Rolling Stone um, were full of 8,000 word pieces by people who would go on tour with the Rolling Stones and take drugs with them and write stream of consciousness pieces. And I thought that's, you know, any, any occupation that gave me this a choice of either that very high moral seriousness or this unabashed hedonistic life, um, I would find my way somewhere in there. So, um, so as, as you said, I, I joined the provincial evening paper and I wanted to be a political journalist at first, but, um, but as I became, in fact, I did become a political correspondent of the Cambridge Evening News, but I've personally found it a little bit disillusioning, a little bit boring, a little bit restrictive. Um, I didn't like the way that I was being used by politicians. Uh, it, it, it was not then called spin, but it was the beginnings of spin. And, um, and I began to do the odd book review and the odd arts interview and felt much more at home in that world because it seemed to me much more open-ended, much more interesting. You, wouldn't, you didn't quite know what was going to happen. You didn't know what was going to happen next month. I, I love this idea of writing in a world that was very, very creative and fast-changing. And, well, cut a long story short, I became specialised in arts journalism and have been doing it for a very long time. Um, the, forgive this epic title, The Changing Face of Arts Journalism. Um, I'm just going to throw out a few ideas that have occurred to me. Um, and uh, quite a lot of this will be about the way the arts and culture have changed since the war. And I think the, um, the radical responses needed to deal with that on behalf of journalism, which have been both bad and good, I think. And I, I look forward to maybe discussing some of those with you. Um, but I want to start 1945, just after the war. Um, the BBC established the third program. And the third program was a new channel which was unashamedly intellectual. It was going to deal with all the great things in high culture, and it was going to bring them to a very diverse and widespread audience. Um, the, the philosopher and literary critic George Steiner 
uh, in a programme about the third programme, he, um, he recalled going to a cheese party in the early 1950s. Cheese party. Cheese, okay. cheese party. Yeah. Because, right. of course, we still had rationing then, and everyone brought their weekly ration of cheese and a, model, uh, a modest glass of wine. And they all, uh, they all assembled in this little place to listen to the Venice premiere of Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress and its libretto by W.H. Auden. A very, very high cultural event. And Steiner remembers, one suddenly had the feeling that one was very rich, very elegant, very sophisticated. It blew open the world at what was still materially a very constricted and doer time. And I think it's important to, to remember that atmosphere after the war in Europe, um, where the feeling was very much, the dominant feeling was that what we had just gone through must never, ever happen again. And how can we make sure of that? Well, one of the things we can do is culture, culture which will bring people together. So you get this wave of cultural idealism after the war. You get the founding of the Edinburgh Festival in 1947 to, quote, provide a platform for the flowering of the human spirit. Very lovely, noble thought. Uh, you get an, uh, the, the opening of the Avignon Festival, and that's still a very, very famous theatrical festival in France. And um, in 1951, you get the Festival of Britain, which is currently um, the subject of a celebration at the South Bank for its 60th anniversary and the building of the Royal Festival Hall. Um, again, incredibly, whenever you walk down the South Bank, you should remember the origins of this thing, a very, very idealistic thing. This would bring people in. Uh, this would bring people into the world of difficult high culture and would, um, would make sure that people across nations made friends and we would never have that terrible scenario again. Um, something happened, though, to this vision. <laughs> the Beatles, on February the 9th, 1963, appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show, um, and one could argue that this was a defining moment in, in post-war culture. Because I happened to be, weirdly, in America at the time. I was very young. I don't really remember it. But um, it had an extraordinary galvanizing effect. And, of course, it tied in with the Kennedy era, etc., etc. I'm sure you're all aware of all those cliches. But um, what was especially interesting, it was a fantastic performance. Uh, they, they were the screams, the girls, the, all those things that you're familiar with. But there was also the quality of the songs. Let me read you a very short extract from this book by a wonderful writer called Ian MacDonald, sadly no longer with us. He took his own life a few years ago, but he wrote very brilliantly about this period. And I think, I, excuse me, I think I'm going to need my glasses because it's a little bit dark. Well, you put the light on it. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I can do it just to read. And um, one of the songs they did was I Want to Hold Your Hand. I hope you all know I Want to Hold Your Hand. Um, it's quite famous. This is MacDonald reading about I Want to Hold Your Hand. The introduction repeated the trick, first used in Hold Me Tight, of masking the home, tea, t home key sorry, by starting with the last bars of the middle section. This time, though, the device was intensified with hammering repetition and a pushed beat, which created ambiguity in the rhythm, compounded by having the vocals enter two beats ahead of the verse. Oh, yeah, I tell you something. To complete this barrage of dazzling effects, the group brought the performance to a breathless full close on two bars of hard-breaking 
Apart from ending with the studio exploding, they could scarcely have hit their prospective American audience with more in two and a half minutes. Um, who, who was that from again? This was the writer Ian, Ian, Ian McDonald. McDonald. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was a very explosive effect, and um, I want to read one more thing about the Beatles from you from a very famous piece in the Times. Um, it was written by William Mann in December of 1963, and it's in, in a similar vein. He's talking about a song called This Boy, an early Beatles song, which features prominently in Beatle programs, expressively unusual for its lugubrious music, but harmonically it's one of their most intriguing with its chains of pandiatonic clusters. And the sentiment is acceptable because it is voiced cleanly and crisply. But harmonic interest is typical of their quicker songs too, and one gets the impression that they think simultaneously of harmony and melody, so firmly are the major tonic sevenths and ninths built into their tunes and the flat subedient key switches. So natural is the Aeolian cadence at the end of Not a Second Time, brackets the chord progression which ends Mahler's Song of the Earth. So you have these extraordinary claims coming, going on for the Beatles. Not only are they conquering the world and getting young girls to scream, um, but people are beginning to take them seriously. Two years earlier, somebody called William Sheldon, 1961 this is, wrote in the New York Times, who, who is he writing about? His voice is anything but pretty. He's consciously trying to recapture the rude beauty of a southern field hand musing in melody on his back porch. All the husk and bark are left on his notes, and a searing intensity pervades his songs. Bob Dylan, of course, the very, very young Bob Dylan, that's the first serious piece, and Robert Sheldon made a living from being the man who discovered Bob Dylan by writing about him. So you get this, and I'm going to talk quite a lot about popular culture and high culture, because I think it's a very important way. It kind of echoes things like the class system in in this country. Um, it echoes the way the arts have reflected society and as we will see later, they've both taken quite unexpected changes of direction until we have the current um, situation now. So here we have the world of entertainment and the world of high art being blurred a bit. And it's my belief that high culture and all those noble spirits I talked about earlier were ambushed by popular culture. Because when with popular culture coming in, you suddenly got a whole load of other people taking control of the arts and the coverage of the arts in the media. You had marketeers, you had brand managers. They weren't called brand managers then, but that's what they were doing. Um, you had public relations specialists. You had Elvis Presley's manager, Tom Parker, who was an extraordinary control freak over Elvis's output and, uh, and, and career. Um, you had Brian Epstein, of course, to a lesser extent, who tried to do the same with the Beatles. And the media became obsessed by this. Understandably so. It was a very exciting time. And high culture, I think, got a little bit left behind. It got it became slightly remote. It, it, it returned to its elite position um, that only a certain section of the population would enjoy and, and be into. And um, the most important newspaper development in high culture was, of course, the role of the critic. Now, the critic 
was the model of how to cover high culture. A very, very learned, very, very specialist man or woman who knew everything about classical music, opera, fine art, and would deliver this rather Olympian judgment on a show that he or she had just seen in the form of a review. And this was the most important part of arts journalism as regards that kind of high culture, the reviewer. And the review is everything. The review from the person who's seen 99 Hamlets, he goes to the 100th and he tells you what's the Claudius like, you know, what's this scene played like. Very, very rarefied and assuming a lot of knowledge on behalf of the reader. When I was, um, I was for five years arts editor at the Financial Times, and I had a very distinguished critic who I won't name, um, and I won't name his art form either, because it will be obvious, but a, ve- a brilliant, brilliant reviewer and very, very influential. And I said to him, look, it would be nice now and again just to do the old feature, maybe, you know, to do the old interview, just to sort of open it up a bit. No, I can't do that. I can't do my job properly as a critic if I mix with the people about whom I'm writing. And this was his absolute serious <laughs> view, that if he did an interview with someone, it would somehow uh, sully his objective judgment and some element of purity would be lost. And it's a very, very pure and, I, I always think, rather strange view. But they very much see themselves as holding the keys to this citadel and they were the people, they were the tastemakers. So it ended up with arts pages being very learned, very, very rarefied places, very difficult to engage with, but gave newspapers a certain kind of luster. Um, and I think newspapers were rather slow in coming to grips, you know, notwithstanding the things that I just quoted to you about Dylan and the Beatles, but they were quite slow. When I, was, um, when I left Oxford, I did the postgraduate journalism course at City University, and we all had to do a project, and I did a, my, my project on how the newspapers covered popular and rock music, and this would be 1979, so it's quite late. And I was quite shocked that nobody had, still then, if you looked at the quality newspapers, the, the Times, they didn't really have a permanent rock music critic. It wasn't taken that seriously. It wasn't competing with for space with a Beethoven review or a fine art review. Um, and that, that's, that's, in fact, what I wrote about, and I found that very interesting. Of course, the other thing about... Where are we? No, we're not on there. Yes, we are on there. The other thing about critics was the enormous power they yielded because they were perceived as holding the keys to the citadel. People took a lot of notice of them. And this is a very recent example. This is a still from the play Enron by Lucy Preble um, about the financial scandal which brought down Enron. A massive hit in Britain uh, started, commissioned by the Chichester Festival, transferred to the Royal Court, and then to the West End, and amazingly played for a very long time at the West End, even though it was a relatively difficult subject. So the next stop, as is logical, was Broadway, New York. It went to New York, it lasted about a week, (laughs) and it closed down. (laughs) 
There are all kinds of reasons given for that. It's a very physical form of theatre, which apparently doesn't play very well on Broadway. And there was also the not unreasonable claim that Americans didn't take too kindly to having a bunch of Brits come over and tell them what was screwed up about their financial system. But one of the things was also the review in the New York Times, from which I quote, the realization sets in early that this British-born exploration of smoke and mirror financial practices isn't much more than smoke and mirrors itself. Enron is fast-paced, flamboyant, and despite the head-clogging intricacy of its business mathematics, lucid to the point of simple-mindedness. But as was true of the company of this play's title, the energy generated here often feels factitious, all show and little substance. Uh, a very damning review, even though the play had been massively hyped because of its success in Britain, and the play duly closed down very quickly. So critics had continued to have power, less so than they used to in this golden age that I'm talking about. So we have this tension between between high art and the critics and this rarefied view and all this amazing popular culture bubbling up and people are beginning to realize has some lasting significance. And what I was trying to do as an arts editor, as I described a second or two ago, is to get more features, more interviews, becomes a definite way in for newspapers of dealing with the arts. That culture and the artistic scene is full of extraordinary personalities uh, saying outrageous things, often outrageous things. So they begin, you begin to see this, this, media, this marketing drive, this promotion, this public relations, the hype, the hype, the hype, the hype, people going on. And the review, the actual review becomes less important. So if there's any big event, you'll get masses of coverage before and then maybe a 600-word review, these days a 300-word review, the space is shrinking ever more. Just to get people talking about it, it's far less, it becomes far less a question of judgment and casting your own expert eye on it. It becomes something that you just want people to talk about. Um, this is Oasis, the bad boys of mid-90s British pop. Um, produced two fantastic albums, sold phenomenally well, but uh, then produced an album called Be Here Now. Now, I'm, I, I bring this example up because I remember it very cle clearly. I got onto the record company and said, when can we listen to this album? Well, we're going to send out a cassette and we're going to send it out on Friday at 12 o'clock and you have to sign a form saying that you're not allowed to say anything about this album until Monday morning, which is the official release date. So there's a whole string of conditions, a very, very, very strong form of control freakery. And of course, all the newspapers want to be first with this review of Oasis because they're the band that everyone's talking about. So the album comes out. I received one of these little cassette tapes. The album comes out. The reviews hit the streets, and everyone says it's fantastic. This is great. It's the third Oasis album. It's brilliant. Aren't they great? The best band since the Beatles. Blah, blah, blah. It sells 420,000 copies on the first day. So here you have the, 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 the marketing, the record company hype, and the newspapers all colluding to create this explosive event. But what's happened to be here now, the Oasis third album, is everyone realised it's not very, very good at all. 
it, it, it was quite soon, a week, two weeks after that, people began to say, is this really any good? If you go on to, um, if you go on to their Google entry, which I was looking up a couple of days ago, the producer of the record um, described it as a disaster. Quotes, all he remembers about it was massive amounts of drugs, big fights, bad vibes, shit recordings. <laughs> and yet it had been massively hyped and did incredibly well. So at this point, those of us who take arts journalism seriously begin to worry, does it matter at all what anyone says about anything? Or is there just, is there just this unstoppable machine of hype? We left high culture on the precipice, balancing, you know, where was it going to go? What was it going to do? But, of course, a new group of leaders in the high culture were brought up in the era of popular culture. And what you began to see happening at the end of the... at the 80s and the 90s, I think, is these people using this kind of marketing know-how and ability to hype for high culture. In 2000... In the year 2000, you got the opening of Tate Modern in London. I don't know how many of you are acquainted with it. But um, on the first day, May the 13th, 2000, 40,000 people visited Tate Modern to see contemporary art. Tate Modern will admit it doesn't have the greatest collection in the world. It's okay, it's good, but it's not great. And it's not a very great place to look at art. In the old sense of looking at art in quiet contemplation, no, the place is full. School kids running in and out, it, quite strange corners. Not, not a beautiful gallery, but an amazing success. Um, they start, this is Take Modern, of course, and uh, they start to commission a yearly installation in that vast area called the Turbine Hall. Uh, this one is by the Icelandic artist Olafur Eliasson. It's called The Weather Project. Just this huge sun. And then that, on the roof there, that's a mirror. And every lunchtime, the FT office is very near Tate Modern, and I would stroll through there every lunchtime, and you would see quite often kids come, five or six of them, and they would lie down on the floor like that just so they could see themselves in the mirror on the roof against this incredible light. Um, another that, that was in 2003 and four. In 2000, 2000, sorry, in 2007, eight, um, we had another piece by Doris Salcedo, Colombian artist, called Shibboleth, and it consists of a crack. Some of you may remember it, just a crack along the whole floor of the Tate Modern, about this big, a really brutal looking thing, which still has left a scar on the gallery. If you go there now, you can see where they filled in the crack. This is very much art as event, art as spectacle. And it's been a phenomenal success. Tate Modern receives five million visitors a year. People want to come to this kind of thing, especially young people. But from the point of view of journalism, it becomes very hard to write about. There's no established set of aesthetic criteria in the easy way that there is when you go and see an opera or a play or an exhibition of paintings. This is an event. What can you say about it? You can describe it, you can describe the effect it has on you, but it becomes much more prob problematic. 
But still, we have to cover it because it's attracting a lot of people. Um, yeah, so what begins to happen to the arts more and more is that it becomes, in terms of journalism, a lifestyle thing. This is the magazine Time Out, which was founded in 1968. Uh, it's a, it was originally by a man called Tony Elliott. It was a, originally a very underground thing. It covered the counterculture. It covered, you know, where to get drugs and and which bands were playing. I think Jimi Hendrix was on the first cover, if I remember correctly. I think John Lloyd worked on it for a while. Did he really? I met somebody the other day who said he worked with John on Time Out, yes. I used to sell it in the streets, yes. I did not know. Yeah. Explains a lot, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, became a very serious um, icon of the counterculture. And uh, today it's published in 60 different countries and makes an awful lot of money because it's become a franchise of well originally arts listings but now everything it's quite interesting in the 1980s uh, Tony Elliott tried to introduce a new magazine called Sellout which would be about shopping and consumerism and it failed so he went back to this but what he then realized was that actually the people interested in time out in arts listings were also quite interested in shopping as well so he put sellout in as a small section of timeout. And now if you pick up timeout, it's about equal. It's about shopping, it's about art, it's about everything. Very, very eclectic and reflecting this trend to lifestyle journalism. You know, it has apps, you can pick up your phone, what's on here, blah, blah. What am I gonna do this evening? Oh, hey, there's a big sun at Tate Modern, I wanna hang out there, you know. The idea of hanging out. I remember really clearly going to, to the Pompidou Centre when it had just opened in the 70s and coming back to London thinking, this place is incredible. You can just go in and sit and have coffee and just sort of talk. And that was a very novel idea that a temple of culture should be a great place for just social interacting and hanging out. But that became more and more the case and it became incredibly successful part of British and world culture, I think. So we've seen a number of, I believe, interesting trends in the arts and culture which have determined the way we've written about them. Um, one of them is a thing called cultural diplomacy. Um, in 2002, Neil McGregor became director of the British Museum and he was very struck during the um, Iraq war when the museum in Baghdad was looted. Some of you may remember the story and lots of very valuable artifacts were taken. And the British Museum had a lot of expertise and they tried to help track even what had been taken. It was very, very difficult. And Neil McGregor defines this as a turning point in his view of, the, of what a museum should be for and what culture can do because um, because he thought if in such a highly charged political arena you could begin to talk about culture a little bit like those idealists I talked about earlier after the war, then maybe that was a way of establishing links, not only between scholars, but between peoples. So McGregor and his team at the British Museum, who had already forged some very powerful academic links, 
with what we might call troublesome countries, and the, the most obvious example was Iran, um, began to negotiate for exhibitions. And quite early on in McGregor's tenure, he organized a magnificent exhibition on Persepolis, the ancient city of Persepolis, and later on, um, on the reign of Shah Abbas. It was fascinating. And this culminated last year in the loan of that object you see there, the Cyrus Cylinder, um, held by the British Museum, um, made, by, made in the epoch of Cyrus the Great, and it's a document in three languages, which is um, an incredibly humane, almost like a declaration of universal rights. Cyrus the Great saying to the people that they could, they had freedom to, freedom of assembly, freedom of belief, all kinds of things that strike us as very, very interesting for that period. Um, the British Museum decided to lend this to to go on show in the National Museum of Tehran. It just came back very recently, a couple of months ago. Um, it had an enormous effect on the people. It had queues and people were going to see it and falling down on their knees and crying and were very, very moved by it. Um, and of course, the exhibitions in London, it was a quid pro quo arrangement of, um, of Persepolis and Shah Abbas, also had an enormous effect on people in London. And it was McGregor's vision that people would go and rather than look at the version of Iran that they read about in the newspapers and they read and they heard about from politicians, that they would try and come to grips with Iran's history. Um, I've interviewed McGregor several times, and once he told me um, about the, uh, the Baghdad looting, that made clear to me how valuable the collection of things is in trying to understand the Middle East. More and more of the politics of the Middle East are couched in terms that are explicable only if you understand its long history and how different participants read that long history. I hadn't understood that before that to have a chance of understanding how they see the issue, you have to go through that long history. And a lot of the evidence is right here, the British Museum. Um, this is McGregor's vision, as I said. It's a museum is a place where you collect things. Things tell stories about history and people. And if you can bring people in to engage with these stories, you've created a kind of civic, philosophical space to talk about those things. It's a very attractive idea, I think, and I think the most remarkable thing the British Museum did was last year when McGregor did a series on BBC Radio 4 called A History of the World in 100 Objects. And um, BBC put a lot of its resources behind it. They got fantastic feedback from people all around the world. It was McGregor handpicking objects to tell their stories. And they, they often had very twisted, strange, counterintuitive stories, but they were all interesting stories. And it was a very, very successful series. Um, the last object, uh, they kind of kept it in suspense what the last object would be, because it was chronological. They said, uh, right, so what is the 100th obvious with you? Well, we're gonna unveil it on, on Monday. And there was a lot of guesswork about, it. oh, it's gonna be an Apple iPad, you know, blah, blah, blah. That would have been an obvious thing. And one of my favorite, they did a shortlist, and one of my favorite items from the shortlist was the shirt of a footballer called Didier Drogba, who some of you may have heard of. Why? Because this shirt was made in China by a German company 
to be worn by a West African player who learned his trade in France and came to England to play for a club owned by a Russian billionaire. <laughs> this was the ultimate example of our globalised world. <laughs> sadly, that didn't win. In fact, the winner was a, um, a solar-powered mobile phone charger, which is quite a modest thing, but McGregor argued in his usual terribly eloquent way, this was something which could literally change the lives of millions of people by connecting them with the rest of the world in ways that they could only have dreamt about. And it's also, as an aside, it's also quite interesting that solar power should feature because, of course, the sun, as any walk around the British Museum will tell you, the sun has always been a crucial part of people's worship since Apollo, Ra, all those people. And now the sun is actually delivering in a very concrete way. Right. Um, so that's one of the things, cultural diplomacy. Um, I really like this idea of culture becoming a space, and this has a bearing on how we write about it in newspapers, becoming a space where you can talk about politics, civilization, society, in ways that politics maybe can't. And I go right back to my choice of journalism at the beginning of my career that because of its fluid and open-ended nature, um, you can say all kinds of things. Enron, the play I talked about earlier, um, was a wonderful example of this. The, the reason people came to see it in droves at the West End was a very unlikely success story, but it was because it was about a financial crisis which people were having real problems in understanding. And this was just the Enron crisis. This was before the big Lehman Brothers thing of 2008, of course. Um, there was a play which addressed that by David Hare. It was called The Power of Yes. And Nicholas Heitner, the director of the National Theatre, commissioned that. And when I asked him, what, what, what made you do this? And he said, I was on the phone to David Hare. And I said, look, the thing that everyone is talking about is this crisis, and they don't really understand it. They don't get credit default swaps. They it's too difficult. Why don't you write a play about it? And he did. He wrote a very quite simple play and quite rude, but not overly polemic. It was just a reconstruction. And people, again, it was a great success. People wanted to see that played out on the stage. And, um, and I, think, I think culture is playing an increasing role in that, perhaps in view of the decline of political ideology, but that's, that's a different discussion, but uh, an interesting one, I think. Um, this year, we have the example of Ai Weiwei, the Chinese artist, um, who brought this, in, this is another turbine hall installation, like the sun and the crack. This one is called Sunflower Stairs, um, consisting of 100 million handmade porcelain sunflower seeds. Um, and as you can see, this is a very rare picture because this is, shows people, again, as I said before, look, there's a guy there just lying down, looking into space, little groups of people just chatting. It's a hangout place. But in fact, two days after it opened, um, it was found that the dust caused by people stepping on this porcelain was a health and safety hazard. So they stopped people walking on it. So as I said, that's quite a rare thing. Um, you could only watch, so you could only look at these seeds. Um, I went to the press conference he gave when, when, he, when he unveiled that installation. 
And he talked about various things. He talked about he talked about playing with the idea of made in China. You know, what does made in China mean? Playing with the idea of sunflower seeds, which were a great tool of propaganda, a great image used by Mao um, in, in, in propaganda. Um, he encouraged people to tweet about, about what was going on. And this is kind of like a metaphor, seeds, tweets. Ai Weiwei himself was a famous um, tweeter um, making a series of quite critical remarks about the, the, the Chinese government. Um, so it was a kind of work of dissent, but in a very subtle way. Um, the, uh, the chief curator of Tate Modern described it as a beautifully simple idea that belies a rich layer of meanings and references. So again, you get something where we have to work quite hard to understand what's going on there. And again, makes it quite difficult, but ultimately rewarding to write about. And what's interesting with Ai Weiwei was that he was um, placed under arrest. Finally, he'd always had a very fractious relationship with the Chinese government, very, very tense. And, um, and he was finally put under arrest uh, uh, without charge. Uh, uh, he has been charged with financial irregularities. Nobody's heard of him. And it's interesting that quite a lot of the efforts in London to bring attention to his plights have been artistic. And it struck me very much that Again, art and culture here has become a forum for talking about China in a way that perhaps politicians and business people simply can't afford to because they already have very vested interests. So again, this is another quite exciting development, I think, um, in culture. And then we have economics, money. This is the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. Um, some of you may have heard of something called the Bilbao effect. The Bilbao effect is, uh, goes something along the lines of if you built an extraordinary, iconic building, people will come from all over the world to see it, fill your hotels and restaurants, and hey presto, you will regenerate your city. Uh, it's happened in Bilbao in ways that nobody really expected. Uh, the latest report in 2009 said that total direct expenditure generated by the museum's activity in the Basque country amounted to 200 million euros a year. This also suddenly became a very exciting thing for people, that if they invested in culture, it would pay off economically. So you're seeing a lot of urban regeneration schemes all over the world, and certainly in Britain, that are actually pinned on cultural either buildings or festivals or events and doing extremely well. There seems to be an endless appetite out there to go and see, to go and engage with the arts. Um, where during the recent British electoral campaign, um, there was some debate about the arts, not very much, I have to say, but a little bit. And the argument put forward by the arts community to, to not have their spending cut was threefold. It was two of them were traditional arguments. One, look, the art is just good for you in a way that it, it ennobles your human spirit. It's just good for your 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 own sense of well-being. Two, it's good for societies. It's a good thing for people to get together and celebrate and think about what they are as a society. But now there was an added argument to those two. It makes money. 
arts, that the arts do make money. And you would be foolish to cut spending on the arts because of its very powerful multiplier effect. Their arguments were not heard. The Arts Council had its budget cut by a third earlier this year. So all these arts organizations are having to deal with that. Fortunately, they've been very successful in prompting private sponsorship because business is always, businesses also realize that there's a lot of cachet in being associated with culture and the arts. Um, last year, I was in Abu Dhabi and uh, Abu Dhabi, one of the United Arab Emirates, a very rich, oil-rich country, um, some of you will know it has a, a Grand Prix now, a really beautiful Grand Prix. Um, they've launched a project in an island called Sadiat Island, where they have commissioned a Guggenheim Museum by Frank Gehry. They've commissioned a branch of the Louvre by an architect called Jean Nouvel. They've commissioned a performing arts centre by an architect called Zaha Hadid, world-famous architects. Abu Dhabi wants to put itself on the map through culture. They already have the wealth, they've shown it, they have resources, but they want to do something more. And this is their way of doing it. And it's going to be an extraordinary, spectacular thing when it opens. At the moment, their buyers are going around the art markets and auctions of the year, spending a lot of money to buy things to put in the museums. And um, they say it's going to be ready in less than a decade, the whole thing. Um, an absolutely fascinating development. I got, a, I got an email in March from somebody from a country inviting me to its cultural landscape forum entitled 100,000 Years, 14 Civilizations, One Event. And it was a very excited email. It said, you must come. We're, we're doing this event to talk about our country's culture and its future. And uh, would you like to interview the person behind it? Well, the person behind this, well, the country was Syria, and the person behind it was Mrs. Assad. And um, around March, things were just beginning to look a bit, um, a bit as if culture wasn't the most important thing going on in Syria. And I wrote them a, a very polite note saying perhaps the timing wasn't quite right, but one day, perhaps. But again, it, several countries are trying to use culture um, to put across their image to the world. Um, that really sums up what I wanted to say about the various ways that the arts and the way culture works in the world have changed. Um, but I did want to add a little postscript. Does anyone know about this? Of course, of course. That's great. I used to ask that question and I would have blank faces all around. Um, uh, some people know about it. I don't know if everybody knows about well, that. Well, yeah, in view of what I was saying earlier about popular culture and high culture, um, this is a, an HBO police series called The Wire. Um, thought by many people, myself included, to be the best thing that's ever been on television. An extraordinary standard of writing and acting. But certainly when it started, I mean, now a lot of people know about it because a lot of momentum has built up. It hasn't run for a while. It, it ran for five seasons. It ran on HBO, an American cable channel. Um, none of the networks would have touched it. They're going to have another season, so... Is that right? Yeah, that's going to be one. Okay. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I, I didn't sign a non-disclosure agreement. I didn't know that. that. Um, 
But the extraordinary thing about this is that for a long time it was a secret. It appeared on British television on a channel that I had never heard of called FX. Um, I don't know why the BBC didn't buy it or the IT or ITV or Channel 4. So once people got into it, and it really is an extraordinary piece of work, it was like a kind of being a Freemason, it's like a secret club. You would go around and say, have you heard of the wires? And that was, okay, get the DVD box set, you know, and, and people would swap DVD box sets, and there would be a very small amount of people. And it struck me as rather interesting, actually, and I wrote a column about this, that television, which was in a sense the ultimate popular art form, has found its own elite niche um, and, 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 and found a way to be really quite rarefied in its own way and very selective and very elitist, if you like, while high culture has discovered all those great marketing skills to make themselves accessible and is pulling in people just to sit around and have coffee and talk about culture. There's been a kind of inversion there, which I find kind of interesting. Um, so that's it. I hope there are a few thoughts that were interesting and, um, and maybe we could talk about it. Thank you very much indeed.